I'm very pleased to make another contribution to this audiovisual library on international law prepared under the auspices of the Codification Division of the Office of Legal Affairs in, in, in the United Nations Secretariat. My topic today will be the advisory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. <clears throat> that topic has a particular connection to my very early working life in the Codification Division. Uh, in, back in 1970, uh, I was preparing for publication a thesis which I'd written a few years before in New Zealand on the advisory jurisdiction of the court. Now I should stress that I undertook this re revision work in, in the uh, evenings and in the weekends, not in the working time of the division. Now to go back to the beginning, the Covenant of the League of Nations of 1919 provided for the establishment of a permanent court of international justice. And Article 14 of the Covenant said very cryptically that the court um, may also give advisory opinions. That's what it said in English. In French it said donora, which suggested an obligation. When, when the, the texts were rewritten um, as part of the statute of the uh, International Court back in 1945, it was made clear in the French text as well that the court's power was discretionary. The court may, the court uh, per uh, donner um, uh, an advisory opinion. Now, when this power of the court um, to give an opinion at the request originally of the Assembly of the League of Nations or the Council was conferred, people, especially the American uh, member of the advisory committee which prepared the statute, Ayla Root, uh, great international lawyer, Secretary of State and so on, uh, and the initial American member of the international court, John Bassett Moore, said, this function was obviously not a judicial function. They, they, they no doubt had in mind the history of the United States Supreme Court, which had decided very early on that it would not give opinions at the request <coughs> of the President. Uh, President Washington was rebuffed by Chief Justice Marshall when uh, the court was asked to give advice on a number of matters relating to the law of neutrality during the wars in Europe uh, at that time, in the early 19th century. The, um, uh, that, that refusal is not uncommon. The High Court of Australia, for instance, decided that it was not its job to give advice to the executive. Its job was to decide cases. And if you look at the statute of the court, you find that emphasis on deciding disputes, deciding them, not merely giving advice, in the words added to the statute of the court in 1945, words that were given have, have been given some prominence in the Marshall Islands cases uh, decided by the International Court in uh, 2016. Now why is there this objection? Well, the initial one is that courts decide, they don't advise. If you want advice, uh, if you're a government agency, you go to the law officers, you go to the Attorney General, the Solicitor General in common law countries, or in uh, the United Nations to the Legal Council of the UN. Uh, and, and that advice is given privately usually, um, and, and it's not the subject of dispute between parties. So there was this challenge, and it's interesting to see how the 
court from the very beginning, the permanent court from the very beginning, took great care to ensure that the procedure that it followed in advisory cases was essentially that followed uh, in contentious cases. It gave public notice to all who might, all the states and other organisations who might be interested. Uh, for instance, in a very early set of cases relating to the International Labour Organisation, uh, worldwide trade union and employer agencies were informed and participated in the proceeding. The proceedings were public, the opinions were reasoned in, in the same way as judgments, and uh, judges were given the opportunity as well to dissent. The assimilation went even further. There have been some cases of judges ad hoc sitting in advisory cases in the same way as they do in contentious cases. So there's been that care from the outset to uh, conform to the procedures uh, so far as possible followed in contentious cases. And that was emphasised by an amendment made to the, uh, to the statute of the uh, International, the Permanent Court back in 1936 and carried forward in the statute of the present court in Article 68 of the statute providing for essentially for assimilation for following the same rules. Now does that apply um, to the requirement of consent as well? Uh, can the court give uh, advice it, and essentially in a matter where there is a dispute between states or between a state and an international organisation if there is no consent. That matter was uh, debated uh, right at the outset in the case relating to Eastern Karelia. At that point the Soviet Union was not a member of the League of Nations. It refused to have anything to do with the Council's consideration of that dispute brought to the Council by Finland and it refused to have anything to do as well with the work of the permanent court on that matter. The, the court did refuse to give an opinion in that case and there's been a good deal of controversy ever since about exactly what the ground was. Well I took the view back in that book that I referred to earlier um, all those years ago that uh, the reason that the court refused to give the opinion was that the council was unable to refer the matter, was unable even to deal with the matter uh, because Russia was not a member of the League of Nations and the covenant of the League of Nations uh, provided that any outsider, any country not a member of the League could be involved in League processes only if it consented. But as I say there's been controversy about exactly what was decided in that case. Now there have been a large number of cases since, I think six of them, in which that issue has arisen and the court has always rejected that ground for refusal. It has indicated that it might be relevant to its discretion and I'll come back to the um, discretion issue a little later but so far as jur jurisdiction is concerned it seems established or at least that's the view that um, I've taken uh, down the years and others of much greater authority have taken and, and they um, th that uh, consent is not necessary. Now one other factor I should just reflect on is the argument that uh, courts don't, don't give advice, they merely decide. In some cases the court through its advisory process does decide. The 
agreements, for instance, on privileges and immunities of the UN and, and specialised agencies and headquarters agreements and so on, uh, provide fairly consistently that if there is a dispute, say between the host state and the international organisation in question, the matter can go to the court for an advisory opinion and, moreover, that advisory opinion is binding. There have been a number of those cases, seven in fact out of the last 14 cases before the court have had that character. Some of them, some of those cases also, are binding advisory opinions, are cases involving employees of international organisations. If um, there is an employment dispute, uh, members of the international secretariats uh, usually have internal review procedures available and they can, if those procedures are not satisfactory so far as they are concerned, they can go to an employment tribunal, the United Nations Administrative Tribunal for instance, or the ILO Administrative Tribunal. And for a number of years um, and the, there has been the opportunity for those decisions of those tribunals to be challenged by way of advisory opinion proceedings in the International Court of Justice. Uh, those procedures have now been terminated, the UN one quite some time ago, the um, one relating to other international agencies through the International Labour Organisation Administrative Tribunal uh, in, in 2016. So those procedures are no longer available, uh, but they too gave rise to binding decisions in relation to those employment disputes. I'll come back to one aspect of uh, the, those cases later, although as I say, no, that those matters no longer come before the court. Now before I do that, there's one other issue that um, is really important in respect of the uh, advisory jurisdiction of the court. I've been stressing its judicial nature, its judicial function. The fact that it uh, assimilates so far as possible its procedures to those that it uses in contentious cases, cases between states. Uh, and, and that is that it is, one of, it is a principal organ of the United Nations, it is the principal judicial organ. So it has said from the outset that it's, it is obliged um, in a general sense to participate in the work of the UN and there's got to be compelling reason before it refuses. This goes to the question of consent. And it has never in fact refused as a matter of discretion, uh, although there have been some suggestions sometimes from judges on the court that it should have refused. It has on one occasion, uh, that is the current court, refused to give an opinion because it said the requesting organ had acted uh, in asking the question without authority, a little like the Eastern Karelia case back in 1923. That case was the case in which the World Health Assembly sought an opinion, an advisory opinion, relating to the use in warfare of nuclear weapons. The court said uh, that went beyond the powers of the World Health Assembly. Uh, the court applied what it called the principle of speciality, that the World Health Assembly was concerned with matters of health. Uh, as the court read its constitution, it, that did not extend uh, to the 
matter of matters of the effects of uh, nuclear war warfare. Now that's a ruling, as with the rulings of number of rulings of the International Court and a number of rulings of any court for that matter, that has given rise to controversy. So there is that emphasis then on the court answering if it, if, if it can, unless there's compelling reason to the contrary. Sometimes the request may be seen as being outside the powers of the requesting organ, as in the WHO case and, as I would say, in the Eastern Karelia case. In other cases, there may be a matter of discretion. Now let me come back to the um, discretion and refer particularly to issues which have arisen but which will not continue to arise in respect of those employment matters that I mentioned. It's pretty clear on the drafting of the statute now, Article 66 in particular, that an individual can't appear before the court. And ordinarily the court will have written proceedings and oral proceedings. What about the employment case? Well, what has happened there in the, in the small number of cases that have proceeded is that the agency in question is required or has even written into its own rules that it will forward the arguments of the, uh, of the individual concerned as well as its own arguments. And so there is a, a practical equality created. The court has also ruled consistently that it will not have oral argument. And, and so an equality is created, but there can be real practical difficulties as can be seen from a case decided in 2012 relating to the International uh, Fund for Agricultural Development, where the court explains the difficulties that it faced. There was also the difficulty in that case that there was that the request um, for the court to reconsider the matter could come only from the employer and not from the uh, not not from the worker, not from the employee, not from the official of the international secretariat in question. And the court uh, did raise questions whether that was any longer consistent with the principle of the equality of parties before the law. But as I said earlier, that jurisdiction uh, no longer uh, exists in respect of those two tribunals. Now, just to uh, bring some of some of this together, I'd just like to um, uh, address the question of what is the question that is presented, because one fairly constant feature of the uh, opinions of the court over the years is that the request gets rewritten. There is a recommendation of the General Assembly from many years ago which says that if there is to be a request, the uh, Sixth Committee, the Legal Committee of the General Assembly, or a Joint Committee of the Requesting Committee and the Sixth Committee, uh, should have a look at the drafting of the text of the question. Now, unfortunately, that's never happened. Uh, and so some of the questions which have come to the court have been in unsatisfactory terms and the court has had to rewrite them and that has given rise to controversy. That's to be seen, for instance, in respect of the uh, opinion uh, given uh, uh, in, in the case relating to the uh, Declaration of Independence of Kosovo, uh, where the court rewrote, some would say, 
inappropriately the, the question. But you can find that going way back uh, through the history of the court. You'll find it, for instance, in, in the case of a dispute relating to the proposed removal of the regional uh, headquarters of the World Health Organization in Alexandria um, after, after some controversy within the Middle East um, peace settlement process. There, the question was rather briefly stated, the answer goes on for a page or more uh, as the court uh, reshaped the question and gave an answer which it thought would be useful uh, to the uh, World Health Assembly and, and, and to Egypt and so on and working out uh, the answer to the real issues that had arisen there. And, and that brings me to a, a wider issue and running beyond um, the business of rewriting. One striking um, figure is that the court, the present court in 70 years has given 27 uh, advisory opinions which is exactly the same number as were given by the League, by the Permanent Court of International Justice responding to the Council of the League in a much shorter period between 1922 and uh, 1935. And the figures uh, in terms of recent years are even more striking. In the last 20 or so years there have been uh, 14 opinions, but seven of them are in those cases that I mentioned of disputes leading to binding opinions, disputes relating to staff matters and disputes relating to relationships between uh, an international organisation and a state. So we're left just with seven substa substantive opinions over that um, rather lengthy period. And, and, and in those cases questions can be asked about quite what the value was, quite how much thinking had been put into the value that could come out of an advisory request. Uh, this is a matter of evaluation and many different views can be taken of it. But for instance, one of the most, the last of the substantive opinions that has been given related to the independence of Kosovo, one I touched on a moment ago, and, and that request came uh, from the General Assembly, uh, there had been no real substantive consideration of the issues relating to Kosovo, a breakaway territory of Serbia, uh, in the General Assembly for some years. The real work on Kosovo was being done, so far as the international system was concerned, in the Security Council. And the court divided on the question whether it should uh, respond. To, to that request. It did in fact uh, with some people, some judges dissenting. Uh, but then, and then when the opinion went to the Assembly it did not lead to any substantive result. By contrast, if you go back to another very divisive issue in the early days of the United Nations, the issues relating to South West Africa, there you find um, a series of requests for an advisory opinion which helped move that matter along in terms of UN procedures. South West Africa had been a German colony uh, before the First World War. It became a mandated territory under the administration of, uh, uh, of, of South Africa after the Treaty of Versailles, after 1919. South Africa refused to 
enter into a trusteeship agreement in 1945-46, and there were these ongoing issues about the status of South West Africa and the mechanisms for um, supervising uh, obligations of South Africa uh, in respect of that territory. There the court gave an early opinion on the matter of uh, the, the status of South West Africa, uh, and then it gave particular rulings on matters about the administration of the ongoing role, as determined in the first of those opinions, of the United Nations, of the General Assembly, and so on. Uh, there was then what is commonly referred to as the disastrous, contentious uh, judgment in 1966 uh, relating to uh, South West Africa, but then in 1971, there was the opinion sought at the request of the Security Council, the first and only such request uh, in, in the South West Africa Namibia case, about, again, the ongoing situation. And, and there you find the court participating at the request of uh, United Nations agencies in a, in a long-running, ongoing problem uh, where it could play a real role in trying to sort out aspects of, uh, of, of that controversy. Now, frequently, every year, in fact, uh, in, the, in the debate in the General Assembly on the role of the International Court of Justice when the President of the Court uh, presents uh, the general report of the Court, there will be calls for the Court to give um, advisory opinions for more of the UN agencies to ask the court to give opinions. Too often, uh, in my view, those requests, those suggestions are put in very general terms. It would be a good idea to have more advisory requests, for instance. And what is really needed, I think, is hard, detailed assessment of just when the advisory process could be helpful in the way I was suggesting it was in the uh, Southwest Africa cases. Just to take one other case from that time, uh, from that, those early days, there was a controversy in the early 1950s relating to the status, uh, the position of American uh, nationals uh, within the UN Secretariat. Uh, it was a time um, in the United States of great controversy about the influence of uh, communism and so on. And, and there were a number of American um, members of the Secretariat whose employment was terminated or not renewed uh, because of their refusal to cooperate with American authorities. Now on the face of it, that refusal was correct because they were international civil servants. That's where their obligations ran. And the UN Administrative Tribunal decided that the, um, uh, the awards, uh, that awards should be made in favour of those individuals, quite considerable sums of money for wrongful dismissal. Uh, the matter then arose, the question then arose, what happened, what happens to those um, awards? Do they get included in the UN budget? Uh, so there was an immediate request by the then uh, Secretary-General, uh, Mr. Doug Hammarskjöld, for an additional appropriation that went to the um, Fifth Committee, the Budget and Administrative Committee of the General Assembly, and there was a debate there about 
whether the UN was obliged to comply with its obligations, with the obligations stated in those awards. That matter was referred to the International Court uh, and it ruled, uh, yes, the United Nations was obliged, that was a, they were binding decisions of a tribunal, the, U, the UN Administrative Tribunal, in effect the Employment Court for the United Nations, and, and so the money had to be paid. The court also indicated that it was proceeding on the basis, and this is another example of rewriting the question, it was proceeding on the basis that the tribunal was properly established and that it was acting within its full authority. And, and it was that, the implications of that that led to the review procedure that I mentioned earlier that has now been abandoned, uh, the review procedure in the International Court, and replaced instead uh, by an appeal tribunal. I'm not going to get into those issues. But there you can see uh, a careful choice being made by a different, a different context, of course, from the South West Africa case, a different choice being made about the use of uh, uh, the advisory process, the use of a court process. And, and if I could um, mention uh, another area where court process has been used, a, a much larger area, um, and that is the area of nuclear weapons and nuclear testing. If I go back to the 1970s and to some of my own experience, uh, New Zealand um, for a long while had taken very strong stands against um, nuclear testing and the development of nuclear weapons and so on from uh, the late 50s through the 1960s and through the 1960s particularly as France um, started to test in the Pacific uh, its uh, nuclear weapons. France was saying we need this force to frup. Three times in our recent history we've been invaded and so on. And so, so there was this real clash of views about that particular issue of uh, nuclear testing. But for New Zealand it was part of a much wider set of issues relating to nuclear weapons, and not of course just for New Zealand, for many other states as well. And, and so action was taken in the General Assembly and in the South Pacific Forum and at a certain point in the International Court in respect of that in the 1970s and then again in the 1990s. And at the same time there were the requests for advisory opinions, I've mentioned that from the World Health Assembly, but also one from the United Nations General Assembly. Now, those court processes were only ever seen by those who initiated them as part of a much bigger campaign about nuclear weapons. Uh, it was never seen as the be-all and end-all. Uh, this was not a matter that was going to be resolved simply by litigation, by, by lawyering, by um, adjudication. These were matters that required much wider political action as well. And of course, that's to be seen. Um, uh, and, and the, all the treaties and so on that have been negotiated in respect of uh, uh, nuclear weapons um, since uh, the Test Ban Treaty in 1963, for instance. So what I'm suggesting in respect of uh, the advisory jurisdiction of the court, that um, real attention be given in con particular contexts of just how um, the Security Council or the General Assembly or any other part of the UN system, just how 
the advisory process might assist, as it has in the past, uh, the ongoing business of uh, handling certain matters. Now it's sometimes said that, say in respect of Security Council business, that it's very urgent and you can't wait uh, for, for weeks, months, years uh, for the court to produce an answer. And sometimes, of course, that is true. But in other cases, it's not. Some of these issues, uh, so the issues relating to Southwest Africa, Namibia, of course, did become independent. Um, some of those issues, or the nuclear issues and so on, or Middle Eastern issues, have been around for a very, very long time. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, it may be possible to use the advisory process or for that matter the contentious process in the International Court to move matters along to uh, get nearer to an overall resolution of the situation or of the problem uh, uh, and, and there, thereby um, facilitate um, a, a happier outcome that would happen without uh, that recourse to litigation. Now as I've just said and I would emphasise it Litigation is not the be-all and end-all. I remember thinking at the time of the um, nuclear weapons requests in the mid-90s, when has any court everywhere, anywhere really been faced with questions like those? You know, are these not matters for political resolution? And I thought back to the, to the great cases and the great campaigns and the treaty making and so on and so on in respect of the slave trade or in respect of the status of slavery. There are some notable decisions about um, uh, slavery or against slavery, but uh, that was not a matter simply for judges alone. There are some notable judicial decisions on, on that matter, but it was also necessary for there to be uh, political acceptance that uh, slavery was to come to an end, and that required not just national action, it also required international action. It required uh, uh, treaty making through the 19th century into the 20th century and in fact slavery in modern day terms is still a scourge which courts will sometimes deal with but primarily it's going to be dealt with by other agencies and uh, quite often at the international level. So the advisory jurisdiction then to go back to the beginning uh, may, may have looked pretty unusual um, a century ago and it was. Um, although a number of national courts do in fact give opinions, um, uh, do give advisory opinions, even within the United States that is the case. Uh, uh, so it was an unusual jurisdiction. It has, however, at different times um, played a valuable role and that's to be seen now too in the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea and in the regional um, human rights bodies, particularly the uh, European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American one. Uh, so it does have a role, it's not as significant a role as the interstate um, uh, contentious jurisdiction but a role nonetheless. So there you have it, there's my views um, after a rather long time of thinking about advisory opinions and advisory requests and uh, I'm grateful for you watching and listening to this. Thank you.